You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street Podcast. I'm excited to have a special guest here today, David Spickett. He is the founder and CEO of The Car Crowd. They are a UK-based, FCA-regulated by our point of representative status, fractional investment platform dedicated to passion assets, starting with classic cars. David, thanks so much for being here. Good to be. Thanks, Phil. Awesome. So let's let's start talking about the car crowd. What is the car crowd? How did it come about? How does someone invest in classic cars? You know, for someone that may not know anything about the topic, it's really exciting. Of course, cars are a pretty sexy product that a lot of people enjoy, a lot of people have a lot of passion for. What does it mean to actually invest in classic cars? What what service and offer do you provide? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think so. I've been into classic cars and cars all my life. You know, since I was about four years old, I've been around car collections. My dad's had a fairly significant car collection, my granddad before him. So we've always been around cars. They've been a fashion sort of asset for me. And I, I, I actually got into a situation where I had my own sort of small private car collection, but then um, kids came along and needed money for a house and, and you know, had to sell the the cars ran out of space effectively, uh, as well as running out of capital or needing the capital for other things. And um, I'd um, you know, always found that if you buy the right cars, similar to any asset type, if you buy the right one, you know, there's a really good opportunity to to, to make appreciation or to make returns uh, on those assets. And you know, we, I guess, my 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 vision when I started the car crowd was to to effectively remove those barriers and reduce the the the, the barriers of entry to enable people to have. Um, uh, you know, an investment into something they're really passionate about. And there's obviously, you know, millions of people across the world that are very passionate about cars, that know a lot about cars, but perhaps, you know, they don't have the capital or the space to be able to go out and buy, insure, store, and maintain their whole car collection. So what we do at the Car Crowd is we effectively offer fractional investment. So we take a single asset, you know, a Ferrari, a Porsche, whatever it might be. We, we use a research, very data-driven research curation criteria to identify the, you know, the curve, if you like, in terms of the ones that are about to appreciate. We, we sort of try to find them at the bottom of the inflection point. And the ones that are about to sort of shoot up tend to be 20 to 25-year-old kind of modern classics. So we, we will go out and find the best example of one of those we possibly can. And then we take that car. We create a, a special purpose vehicle, SPV, or a limited company here in the UK, uh, divide that into a number of fractions, and then we allow people to buy those those shares, those fractions in the car. And you know, effectively, they can have maybe a thousand, two thousand pounds into, into a Ferrari, then another two thousand into a Porsche, another two thousand into a fast forward or a hot hatch or whatever it might be, to create a really well diversified asset-backed investment because all of the investments are, you know, are, are, are by the assets. They can also come and see them at any time. We do open days, we do coffee, cars and coffee events and stuff as well. So we encourage people to interact with their investments as well. So, you know, we try to give a way for people to really unlock the fantastic potential returns that classic cars can give in a, in a, yeah, a diversified portfolio kind of way as, and also give that sort of differential experience above any other asset class uh, that's out there. So could you maybe starting with the definition of a classic car, teach me like what that means, right? And and what what is the, the increasing value derived from? Because 
I think to myself sometimes that when people buy cars, that's seen as a very much quickly depreciating asset, right? And I'm talking about like your regular cars. Like if you buy a regular Toyota, you brand new, for example, or even like, you know, used, the what what's what's the the saying that like the moment you drive it off like the 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 lot it decreases in value massively 90% plus of cars that are produced in the world at the moment will be depreciating assets instantly you've got a very few exceptions but but the majority of cars that we use every day that we drive you know are, are effectively depreciating to zero assets what we try to do um, is we identify some trends using you know basically historical data but also using sort of things like popular culture and social social cues as well uh, and we come up with our curation criteria, our shortlist, which effectively takes into consideration, um, you know, things that have consistently through the period of the last 60 or 70 years indicated that a car has a good potential to appreciate. Some of those are quite obvious. So if you think about movie cars, for example, being the, the probably the most obvious category, you know, if you've got the James Bond, Aston Martin, or you've got even now in more modern times, you know, Fast and Furious, for example, the Toyota Supras and Nissan Skylines from the Fast and the Furious franchise, you know. Those cars are huge in popular culture and therefore create this like iconic status uh, and they tend to therefore appreciate very, very well. You then look at other, you know, the normal sort of investment criteria, like just supply and demand. You know, if you've got a low supply and a high demand with any asset, that's a fantastic place to be. So, you know, we look at things that have got low production runs, special editions, maybe that are linked to motorsport, homologation specials, anything where the production run of the number of cars was around the, the sort of sub 1000 club. You know, and then you've got then sub 500, sub 250, you know, they, you sort of can categorize the, the, the rarity and the scarcity of the asset in, in, in sort of their production numbers. Anything with those low numbers tends to have, you know, very high demand and therefore is, is very much, a, you know, a good indication that it will have potential appreciation. And then the final criteria we look at is, is actually just a macroeconomic factor around import-export statuses and, and where these vehicles were and weren't released. And in the States, for example, there's a there's a 25 year rule which which means no no cars that were created I think after 2000 uh, made for the American market can be entered into the American market because they would fail emissions tests crash tests and stuff like that. So as soon as they hit 25 years old, they become exempt from that because they're classic cars. They have the classic car status and therefore they can be imported in. And that just means that as you get cars that weren't released there, they become again kind of cult status, a bit classics. You've got again things like the Toyota Supra, for example, the Nissan Skylines. The, the, the JDM cars that weren't released in the States hitting 25 years old kind of over the last couple of years and they're flying up in value because again, massive demand, low supply, and it's a great recipe therefore to create future value. So, so we basically use all those different things. Uh, we create our shortlist of criteria and then once we've identified the right you know, cars, we will then use our, you know, I guess our, our kind of checklist to make sure that they're all low, low mileage, great history, fantastic condition. You know, we, we do all the research, if you like, and the vetting on behalf of the investors to make sure we only bring the absolute top you know, best of the best quality, because even if you've got an appreciating asset and then having the best of the best, then enables you to, you know, to stay top of the market and effectively set market prices uh, for the scarcity of the asset. So yeah, that's how we kind of work. That's why, you know, our cars are not normal cars. You know, they're very much, you know, in this kind of what we kind of call classic or modern classic status. And and when I think about the way you're describing what brings value to a classic car, I mean, I'm I'm hearing a lot of parallels with other collectibles, passion assets, alternative investments. You know, like, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know if this might be obvious to you, but like even like sneakers, right? Like some of the most ex like exclusive sneakers, like, for example, one of the most expensive sneakers ever was the ones, the Nike mags worn by Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future, right? So that might be like course, the yeah. James Bond Aston Martin equivalent of sneakers or maybe Travis Scott shoes that he has Travis Scott PS5, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, and then same with like, like baseball cards, for example, right? You know, there's certain baseball cards that were famous for a particular reason or 
rare and old because there's only three of these Babe Ruth cards left in history. Is that, and I guess when it kind of goes back to like the sort of mission statement of being dedicated to passion assets, starting classic cars, the car crowd. Is that a fair way to describe it? Like there's a sort of consistency amongst like passion assets. And like, let's say someone who's listened to this podcast, maybe heard me interview folks in the sneaker world. The reality is cards are not that different. Exactly right, Tony. I mean, you know, it's like anything. You know, it's it's um, scarcity drives value. You know, that's the thing I think. And and you need you not just need scarcity, but scarcity, high quality, and um and, and popular culture. You know, if you've got those sorts of things mixing together, then you've got a really good chance with any asset. You know, if you've got the 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 best condition property, you know, on the in the in the most amazing location that can't be repeated, you know, that's going to be appreciated faster than one that's in a different location. Same with the trainers. You know. A, um, one that's been famous for a film or, or that's been uh, one of maybe five or 10 pairs ever made that you couldn't get because there were queues around the block when you tried to buy it, you know, because that that sort of, um, that rise in fame and popular culture uh, is driven by its scarcity and that just continues over time. And then what what we see a lot of, and I, I guess it's probably similar in, in, the, in the trainer world, but as you mentioned, the Michael J. Fox then, but if you go with, um, you know, look at these trend lines, you sort of have this sort of double, double, double appreciation curve. So the, the things sort of spike initially and then they plateau a little bit in terms of values. But then as people hit their kind of 30s and into their 40s, they then go and buy the assets that they really love when they were kids, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Like, you know, I, I'm a bit of a computer game geek as well. So the, the, the GoldenEye game on the Nintendo 64, for my 40th birthday, I went out and bought myself an original boxed N64 with GoldenEye because it's, it's, yeah, it's the console I grew up with when I was 17 years old. So, you know, anything that drives nostalgia effectively then has this tick up in value because people are, you know, they've just got enough money now to go out and buy the things that they were, they, that, that makes them smile. And then you get a second, a second appreciation around retirement age. You know, people get annuities from their pensions. They've got a bit of spare cash. Some of them might be thinking, you know, that whole midlife or end of life crisis type thing. And you think, right, it's going to be my last chance to go and get that two seater convertible Ferrari I've never owned. And again, that then pushes up the prices again as, as, as the assets get to kind of 30 to 40 years old. So you have this sort of, 15 to 25 year appreciation. Then you have kind of 35 to 50 year appreciation. And that's really driven by that nostalgic impact as well. So scarce assets in those two, you know, I guess those two stages of life uh, are fantastic recipes to create a really good potential appreciation for, for any, any asset, whether it be a trainer, whether it be a car, uh, you know, it really doesn't matter. Well, I mean, one other analog I'd like to take from, let's say the trading card world is this concept of like modern versus vintage. Like for example, baseball cards that are pre, I forget, like I think the 90s are considered like vintage cards. And you think about ones from like the 50s that are definitely vintage versus modern, which is cards you're buying from players that are currently playing in the MLB right now. When I think about cars, like it makes a lot of sense to me what the vintage ones are, you know, like famous cars from like maybe the second half of the 20th century from the the brands that you might expect. Is, is there a market for the sort of, like does classic cars ever encompass cars that are modern in the sense that some that have come out in the last five, 10 years because they're limited edition? Are there like Travis Scott versions of cars in the last five, 10 years? Or is it mainly like cars you're talking about that are from like the 60s, 70s, 50s? Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're very much, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Very similar again, right? So we call them heritage vehicles, which would be like the vintage stuff. So 60s, 50s, 60s. Uh, there's certain cars of that era that are very valuable still Dino Ferrari Dinos Jag Jaguar types things like that that are still the most achingly beautiful cars that would just stand the test of time forever so those cars will always remain collectible but then if you get something like um, I don't know an Austin Healey or an old MG or something that's you know a bit more like you'd imagine a kind of chitty chitty bang bang style looking car those are massively losing value at the moment because actually the people that are like those cars are, are now into their 80s 90s and unfortunately passing away so there's less demand right so it's just that therefore you know we wouldn't 
we wouldn't really be looking at anything 1940s, 50s, even into maybe the early 60s. So there's, there's, there's sort of that vintage or heritage category. Then you've got yeah, the modern classics, which is what we're dealing with now, really, for us, that's not nostalgia inducing 1980s to 2000s. They're the sort of, I guess they're for us, there are what we would call, I guess, bread and butter. They're the kind of real things that are a much safer appreciation story, a much safer investment case. And then you, you can go up to the more modern stuff. So if you look at... Um, you know, some of the more modern low production number hypercars and supercars, you know, things like the Bugatti Chiron or Zonda, Zonda Fs, uh, you know, the Pagani Zondas, or the, the, even, even into like a, a McLaren Senna, which is sub 1 million, you know, about 650, 700,000 pounds, about a million dollars. You know, Ayrton Senna is going to be, he's actually behind me on the wall here, Ayrton Senna, the former F1 racing driver. He's going to be, unfortunately, 30 years since his death next year. So if you buy a McLaren Senna, which is a 2015, 16 car, so only five to seven years old, if you buy one of those and then you, you know, you, you wait till next year, there's a great chance that because of the global marketing that's going to be happening around the you know, celebration of Senna's Senna's racing experience, oh. that could actually still lead to a big uptick in appreciation of the vehicle as there's more demand. There's only 500 ever made. So, you know, globally, those cars are then become very, very sought after as people, people see the press and the hype around the, around the Senna kind of tribute. So there's, you know, there's, there's reasons. And, and if, you, if you do this every single day, it's all you do, which is what we do here. You know, there's a team of five of us that, that just look at classic cars or, or we call them classic cars, but it's really any, any you know, type of car. If you do it every single day, you know, you, you identify the trends, you know, you get really ingrained in the understanding of what, what influences price appreciation in the category. And then we can bring that to investors because that's all we do. That's what we sweat. And therefore, you know, you can be guaranteed and assured that hundreds of hours have gone into researching and understanding why that car has been picked for our platform. And, you know, therefore there's still no guarantees with investments. As you know, you know, capital's always at risk, but there's a calculated asset backed formula that we feel like gives a differential opportunity for people to, to, to really invest in something they're passionate about and unlock some really, you know, very strong returns. And, and what kind of people are coming to the car crowd? Like, are you looking for, I don't know, high net worth individuals that have a passion for cars? Maybe, maybe they don't, they don't care at all. They just see it as a good investment. What's like the profile of the type of person that's working with the car crowd and, and how much of their motivations are lied in them actually being maybe their own sort of fans of cars versus people that are more different, but they just see it as like, as like a, as a, as a valuable asset to, to put their money into. Yeah, it's, 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 it certainly started off being much more passion led when, 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 you know, we first started in 2019, you, you know, very, we, we built an audience fairly quickly of very passionate people that were taking small investments into cars. Um, over the, the last, you know, sort of 18 months, I think, because we've developed a reputation of delivering, you know, between 18 and 20% annualized returns, we're starting to see more serious investors come onto the platform as well. So the average investment, for example, has increased on the platform from sort of three or 400 pounds to 700 pounds. Now it's nearly 2000 pounds. So we're seeing the, the amount of, you know, invested per person per car go up. We also have some investors that have approached us to utilize the curation criteria to create their own private portfolios. So outside of the fraction investment, they've sort of said, look, I may, I may have put 20 or 30,000 pounds across four or five cars on our fractional platform, but then they actually say, you know, could you build me a quarter of a million pounds? Um, you know, what cars would you buy? Maybe two or three cars for a quarter of a million pounds that, that, that we can keep and hold for five to seven years and, and, you know, try and make serious appreciation on that. So the, I guess the performance, because, because we, we take so long to curate and deliberate over the right cars, the performance of the assets has been very strong. We've got 23 assets under management now. Over, over two million pounds worth of, of assets under management, and the the average was, return has been twenty percent over the last eighteen months, and that 
that I think has unlocked the opportunity for more serious investors to come and think, actually, this category is actually very interesting. And, you know, unlike some of the other things like property, where it can be very uh, influenced by financial markets, you know, by, by economic pressures or commodities that can be influenced by war and famine, the geopolitical stuff, actually classic cars has, has been fairly consistent, similar to art, you know, it's been fairly consistent. Uh, across you know a couple of decades now and resilient to those financial up and downs, which makes it a good way for people, especially coming into these uncertain times that we're in now, a good way for people to 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 really get an asset back to investment that delivers good returns. And I mean like 20% return, like on average, of course, it should be attractive to almost any anyone, any kind of investor. But I would imagine as well, you know, you're talking about something that's pretty new. Like I don't I can't think of a dozen other companies that are doing the same thing. Do you ever find yourself in situations where it's a Maybe not a hard sell, but more education is required. Do you get certain like objections? People are still wrapping their head around this. Is that not a challenge at all? Because whenever it comes to any type of passion assets, like I think, of course, if someone's into this, it sounds obvious to them the same way someone would feel that way about sneakers. But do you find that people are still trying to wrap their head around this? Is there still like a, a curve left where this the size of this the, the addressable market could 10x or 100x if people, if and when people understand this more seriously? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this should, this could go and should go, you know, all passion assets, all, 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 all of the categories should go in the same way as, as, as property, you know, in terms of property investment. I, I think it's, there's no reason why the market size shouldn't be just as big, whether you're, whether you're looking at art or sneakers or cars, you know, I, I think the seriously valuable commodities and scarce commodities should always go up in value. For me, these are like the new diamonds, right? The new gold bars. It's like, it's, it's, it's just something that appeals more to a mass market audience of a, of a generation that's kind of, you know, coming up next from, you know, the mid twenties, you know, millennials kind of upwards. But so, yeah, I think it's got a huge future, you know, passion asset investing in general has a huge future. I mean, for us in terms of what, what do we see as our barriers or our, our kind of feedback that we're getting, you know, certainly it's illiquid you know that's that's a key thing to say it's an illiquid investment so although we said you know it's a 20 percent appreciation that's a 20 percent appreciation with estimated values right now the cars are held between five and seven years so you know we look to give a valuation every year and then we ask the investors to vote whether to keep or sell the car so they're not tied in for the full seven years there is like an annual vote that happens but you know it has to be voted upon and it has to be sold and the asset has to be realized to, to give the returns so in, in exactly the same way a property does but I do think that's a natural skepticism for people of, you know, it's not a liquid investment like a stock or a share. It is, it is still illiquid. So there is that, that aspect that people have to, you know, to make sure they really understand and to make sure they understand their capital is tied up and you can't instantly access it. You know, that, that I think is something that, that needs to be educated and taught and, and worked through with potential investors. And then the second thing for us is the same as any passion asset. You know, you don't get to, oh, you don't get to drive it, right? You don't get to use it. So if you invest in art, you know, you don't have masterworks or, or, or whoever, Maddox Galleries, you don't get the, the piece of art hanging on your wall. If you invest in some Chateau Neuf de Pap or some sort of expensive wine, you don't get to drink it. You know, if you're in cars, it's the same. Unfortunately, we can't let people drive the cars because that would lead to depreciation and not what we're looking for, which is, you know, obviously the return on investment. So there's that. We do have this museum concept similar to a gallery where you could go and see the cars, like you could go and see the artwork. So we do have, you know, a differential kind of, I guess, leverage over something like watches or wine because the cars are very attractive and people still like to get up close and personal with them and sit in them and view them and take photos and stuff like that. So we do give you access to them, but it's perhaps not as, as engaging as if you could actually drive the cars, which obviously we, we can't allow. So I think, yeah, the liquidity and, and, and the fact that uh, you can't drive the cars are the two major barriers. But as I say, over the last four years, we've seen less and less objection and more and more people just understanding it because there's more and more global investment platforms offering this type of investment. So therefore, you know, it's more commonplace, it's more understood, 
and therefore we're seeing more kind of savvy investors, I guess, taking up the opportunity to uh, to invest in classic cars. And, and I guess since since you know you're UK based and FCA uh, regulated in whatever the particular definition is, then it's something that people are able to invest. Like, what are the limitations of that? Like, if I if someone's listening to this and they live in Indonesia or they live in California or they live in Texas or Brazil, can anyone invest right now? Or is that something that is based on maybe some geographic limitations? You have to be an accredited investor or things like that. And then also is the ambition that, I don't know, five years from now, you'll start opening up other products that would be more open to other people, other geographies. What's the limitation and what's accessible right now if someone's listening to this from anywhere around the world at different varying levels of income? Yeah, um, so we try to utilize the same curation expertise and the same approach to, to to getting cars. And then we effectively use that to then power our products, our go-to-market products. And we have go-to-market products that should reach any investor level. So if you are a, you know, sort of 500 to 5,000 pound investor per year or dollars, whatever it is, currency wise per year, that fractional business is where you are. So that's the car crowd brand. That's the one that, that we use to power that. We then have a new brand starting next year called Luso Invest, which is more kind of high net worth. So that's, you know, that would cater for investment sort of, you know, around 50,000 to 100,000 pounds into a, uh, into a fund. And then we're also launching the private portfolios, which is, you know, if you want to invest half a million to a million pounds into classic cars as a private portfolio without any capital gains tax, because they're capital gains tax exempt here in the UK, and then we can do that. So we have this sort of spectrum, if you like, uh, building up. In terms of geographic, the fund, which launches in September under the Luso Invest brand is, is, is global. That's fine. You can invest from anywhere. The private portfolio is obviously global. You can invest from anywhere and a fantastic opportunity for American investors, just, just FYI, because of the 25-year rule. We recently had a feature in, in an American magazine, had a couple of inquiries from that. But basically, if you can buy assets, we can source you assets in Europe and the UK, store them here from, say, 22 years old up to 25 years old, and then ship them straight to the States for sale on Bring a Trailer. And we've done that successfully with a couple of Honda Integra DC2s and DC5s. We've done it with Toyota Super. We've got, we've got a Nissan GTI R Sunny as well. There's, there's lots of cars that were exempt from America that we can get access to here in UK and Europe and ship them across. So, so that, that sort of global nature, if you like, really plays out within the sort of private portfolio world because you can own the whole asset. Um, and then, yeah, from a fractional investment business to the car crowd platform, we are global with that as well, apart from North America, unfortunately, because of the taxation rules and the way that we currently do the reporting just doesn't enable us to satisfy the requirements for American investors in the taxation aspect. So unfortunately, that's, that's the market. And then the only other markets that are exempt are any that are subject to any sanctions so any embargoes effectively on, on, on trading with certain nations. But the majority of, of people hopefully watching, watching this will not be in one of those countries. So yeah, we've got lots of investors already from Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then loads from Dubai and the UAE. You know, it's quite a big market for us as well as mainland Europe and, and obviously the UK. Yeah. Where do you see the most growth coming from? I guess this more is a question in terms of the, the classic car uh, market is... Out of all those geographies, are there certain areas that you're most excited about where you see things are trending up or trending down even? Uh, is there like an area, I guess, if you think about this business globally, where you see yourself spending more time in the next few years? We've already spent last year going going west to east, <laughs> if you like, um, and moving across towards the eastern markets. I mean, 
Uh, that started with Europe. We've launched um, with a with a platform that we so we also do car curation for other investment platforms. So where they've got a distribution in their home market and they've got their own regulation, we just we can provide the same curation expertise for them. It's almost like a kind of B two B business business service. Um, so we we sort of offer that investment as a service option for, for for classic cars, and we've done that successfully with Splint, who are Swiss based, and they've seen great great growth. Um, and we're hoping to partner with a German-based platform very soon. Uh, we're also partnered with Convi, who are German and Republic of Ireland. So there's there's a number of, um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, I guess more savvy, more disruptive platforms that are, that are starting across Europe that are seeing great success with with this opportunity to allow people to invest fractionally. The UK is very restricted because of its regulation, which is a great thing to protect investors. Um, in Europe, the certain markets across Europe that are, that are having a bit more of, I guess, a wider approach, a bit more an inclusive approach to it. Uh, and therefore, they're seeing some really strong growth. And then moving further east, you know, we're seeing um, a lot of opportunity and a lot of excitement. I think is probably the right word from from the Asian markets, both both sort of Middle East and also from Asia. I mean, like I say, we, we we've got another partner in in Singapore. We're looking to hopefully partner with another business in Hong Kong. You, there's definitely the appetite to invest in real world assets. They've obviously been used to kind of investing in property. What we're working through now is the kind of the mechanism, or excuse the pun, the vehicle to bring the investment to them because they're, you know, they're used to the fund type structure, not necessarily the fractional structure. So it's about, you know, there's a bit of education, a bit of working with them to, to, to get these, these sort of, you know, I guess the Asian markets to understand kind of what fractional investment means and why it's attractive, why it's a good diversification tool. Um, and then once that's there, you know, there's no doubt that that cars, especially in these, you know, in the Middle East and in Asia, are fantastically popular. You know, there's a massive, massive, you know, following for for for, for high value cars in those markets. So that that hopefully, once we get the right structure, will unlock you know a nice big audience in 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 that market for us. So that's certainly where our focus is going to be, I think, in 2024. And then moving probably into Australia, Australasia, and, and sort of the Australia region as well towards the end of the year. Yeah, one one thing that fascinates me, particularly about the way you described your business, is the sort of level of data and analysis that you do to like predict or to assess what cars are good investments or not. And I, I would imagine that sounds pretty unique to me. Like I'm, I'm sure maybe not you're the only person in the entire world doing that, but it sounds like a pretty unique, both in terms of like data set, but like analysis on top. And I think about a world where if the, the growth of passion assets, to use that term, increases maybe we could eventually get to a point where you have like a seeking alpha of classic cars where people are starting to have more sophisticated analysis on these different cars right now. I guess without knowing completely the car industry deeply, does that already exist actually? Are there people out there who are like influencers, creators, writers who are like, this is this is how I predict the this car to be increasing in value or decreasing in value, et cetera? Yeah, no, nothing, nothing in terms of of you know real mature models to do that. I mean, there certainly is 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 you know there's there's publications and journalists and, and influencers that will speak about the trends and what they what they experience and what they expect to see in terms of appreciating classics. So there certainly is you know there is there is commentary on it. Um, there is a one definitive index you know, yeah, that sort of says this is the, this is the index. The only indexes that exist at the moment, there's a fantastic one called the, the Historic Automobile Group Index, Haggy. And, and that's a fantastic index, but it's very aimed at the top 1%, you know, like the real unobtainable one of one, you know, um, that, that might be one of one Bugattis or one of one Ferraris that are incredibly 25 to 50 million pounds. And, and they use that to kind of, you know, look at trends in the market. Haggerty, the global insurance provider, are looking at trying to utilize some of the insurance-based data to try and set price trends and stuff like that. So there's a few people looking at it. And because obviously of the, 
the nature of, of what we do. We're very involved in those conversations and we're going to be hopefully helping because we, you know, we do now hold a lot of data, a lot of information that we've got up over the last four years that could also help influence some of those indexes. And of course, for us becoming hopefully the, you know, the kind of global, global classic car investment provider, we're hoping to hold a lot of those assets. So we could also then see price trends and price increases because we'll be the ones trading a lot of those cars. So, you know, our, our aim is definitely to, to support the, the utilization of data to make good informed decisions when, when collecting or picking investments. And the utopia for me, I mean, I've always been very interested in blockchain and, you know, sort of tokenization in general. And I think if we can, we, we're building a virtual reality garage and I'd love to get to a space where, you know, we can almost attract new investors by reducing the barriers and creating a far more engaging way to, to shop for investments, whether that be virtual reality or AI. You know, if we could use something maybe even augmented that comes out of the iPads and you can spin it around to look at the contours of the car or the watch or the wine, whatever it might be. You know, we're, we're researching stuff like that because I, I'd love to get to a place and I think we could get to a place where you have benchmark valuations for your assets that are benchmarked, you know, independently against each other so that you can really get into a situation where you could start to trade a share in a Rolex or a share in a, a Banksy, a piece of art for a, for a share in a Ferrari. And you could start to really seriously curate you know, an alternative asset collection that, that, you know, is both passion based, but is also, you know, based on really strong data and has great chances to appreciate. So we're, we're looking to really be, be, be leading that charge as well next year, uh, because that's a, a huge place that we see as, as not just growth, but also something that I think people need, you know, people really want because investments can be a bit boring and we need to bring it into the, into the next entry. Yeah. I mean, in the last three minutes of what you said, there's like 50 topics I could, un subtopics I could unpack from that. I mean, yeah. like so many things. I mean, one is the fact that, you know, the token, like if, if everything, if all these like passion assets were tokenized on maybe the Ethereum blockchain or something like that, or another blockchain, there could be, the, or, or even just interoperable blockchain, people could trade in a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized way as well, like maybe a, an NFT that represents the value in a Rolex versus an, in a Lamborghini. But also whether or not blockchain is adopted, it's something where I don't see a world where retail interest in passion assets goes down. I just see it going up, right? Whether you're old or whether you're young. So I mean, like, Maybe just a way to rephrase what I'm saying is, you know, you mentioned a lot of things there, whether it's the growth of passion assets, whether it's, you mentioned, just touched on briefly, like blockchain, you mentioned like virtual reality, augmented reality, AI. Maybe could, could you expand a bit on that in terms of maybe where you tangibly see the role the car crowd could play in this, but also painting the macro picture of where you see the world going when it comes to how technology is coming together with these different uh, passion assets. I think it, it, for me, it's all about the engagement aspect. You know that 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 the, you know it's flat and dull. And I think we we've always been very passionate about about the sort of democratization and the disruption aspects of what we do. You know because we 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 feel like um, there's a there's a massive lack of education in investment in general and about what investment means. And at the moment, that stops people from making investments and making you know good decisions on their financial health. Um, and, and a lot of that's drawn out of the fact that it's not sexy, right? It's, it's just boring. Because, uh, you know, you don't go to the pub and have a chat with your mates about, about investments, you know, unless, unless you're in that world, right? But, you know, nine times out of 10, most people don't. Um, whereas actually there's, there's a fair amount of, of capital that, 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 you know, some of these people have that might just be in a savings account yielding half a percent that could work so much better for them in a one or two or three year product that, that, that you know, could be and should be created, especially for that sort of market. Um, and I think what, what we've been aiming to do is, um, is utilize technology to help bring that gap you know, closer and remove it. And we've, we've done a lot of research. We've actually built already our virtual reality garage. It's not launched yet, but it will be in, in Q1 slash two next year. 
um, where we have, you know, complete virtual reality, you know, wireframes of all of our assets. So you can go and you can look at an asset, you can open a door and a boot and you can, you can effectively click on a button and see the YouTube videos. Uh, you've got, you can click on another bit and see all the data in the history. We're also looking at working with a blockchain company to provide all of that historical, historical information about the asset on blockchain as well, so that we know everything is safe and secure and, you know, everything is stored digitally around that asset that's there. So we create a complete digital footprint of the asset and a virtual reality rendering model. Um, that for me, um, gives you a differentiation, differential, sorry, um, experience when you're searching for assets to invest in, because you can, from the comfort of your own home, you can go and view and see, and if you could do that with some artworks and you could do that with, you know, some watches or wine or whatever, and you can really go and, and sort of not quite touch, but, you know, almost get that real world experience. That feels like something you would discuss and you would talk about investments with other people when they would start to raise the profile of investing in general um, and start to, uh, to, to increase the appetite of people putting money into asset-backed investments rather than some of the silly things we saw last year around you know, you know, NFTs that weren't ba asset-backed that were very much in the ether that have gone from hundreds of thousands of dollars to, 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 to none, you know, almost zero. So there's this sort of role, if you like, of technology that needs to be with education, because I think those two have to go hand in hand. Uh, otherwise, you know, you can get technology and influencers pushing an agenda. And, and if the education doesn't follow, people can make some very silly decisions and get themselves, uh, unfortunately, into, into situations where they can lose a lot of money, which is not what anybody wants because, you know, the assets go up in value over time. So therefore, everybody should still hopefully increase their capital. Um, so that, that's what we're looking to do. I mean, augmented reality is another interesting one because we see the opportunity to, to create models effectively that they're not just existing virtual reality with a headset on, but also pop out of a, an iPad or a laptop using holographic tech. You know, we're experimenting with that as well. And, and there's some great companies out there doing that at the moment. It's bloody expensive right now, but it's got to come down in, in, in price. And again, an, another way of doing it. So yeah, and I think what the, the, the eventual aim really is to create something that's not a global, you know, the globalization really becomes localized. So you create localized communities from again, globalized countries of people that are interested in very similar topics. That creates you know, a, an online community where you can share, you can educate, you can get excited, and hopefully you, know, you, can, you can return you know, profitability on capital because you're, you're being able to, within your world, if you like, or within your interest sector, you'll be able to make informed decisions about what you're going to invest in. You'll be able to get up close and personal with them, a bit more gamified, a bit more community-driven. And actually, you start to create investment as a, as, a, as a service, a real kind of experience, rather than just being something that you kind of, you know, your mum and dad did. It starts to become something that's much more popular in the narrative of, of, of millennials and future cultures, a future generation, sorry, below that. That's, that's amazing. I mean, I see that world coming. I don't know how long it will take, but maybe looking back, like one thing I'm curious here is where your passion for cars came from. I mean, you mentioned that like being something that since you were, since childhood, you were interested in, obviously you mentioned the Ayrton Senna poster right behind you. But if you were to look back on, was it like certain cars that stuck in your memory, like very specific cars from your childhood? Like, do you have like grail cars right now, or maybe, maybe drivers that you care a lot about? Where, where does like the personal element of the passion come from? Yeah, it, it's all been driven by, by my, my upbringing, if you like, you know, I, I think I was four years old when I worked on, on my Rallycross Mini. My dad was a mechanic on a Rallycross Mini. So, um, you know, and I've owned probably 25 Minis, I think since then, because it's that car is just for me, that's my holy grail, a very accessible classic car, you know, uh, but I've, I've had so many of them that I work on them myself. I mean, um, I, I think from there, I remember being, being scooped up from my bed, probably about eight or nine years old and waking up in the Welsh forests, watching the RAC rally and seeing cars like the RS 200, the Audi Quattros, Toyota Celica GT4s, 
Metro 6 R4s, Lancia Delta Integrales. You know, I could go on, but seeing those cars just, you know, you wake up almost in the dark when it's about seven in the morning and all of a sudden there's just this noise and flames coming at you. You know, as a child waking up and hearing that and smelling that and seeing that, it, it's something you never, ever, ever forget. Um, and and then late, latterly, I was quite, quite lucky because um, one of my dad's best friends, Martin, was actually worked for BAR Honda and then Braun Racing and, and um, uh, Renault F1 teams. He's, he's been in F1 for, for sort of 20 years, uh, maybe longer. Uh, and in the early 90s, I got to sit in uh, Roberto Moreno and Ricardo Petrace's F1 cars and be around Formula One for the first time, like up close and personal at the back of a garage. And then, you know, when you feel the noise, something vibrate all the way through your body as one of those cars starts up and then pulls out of the, of the drive, uh, pulls out of the garage, sorry, onto the pit lane. Um, again, it's that, that just evocation of senses that is just unrepeatable. And, and that's, I think that's what sparked my passion and my love for cars. I've then worked quite closely with my dad, helping him to curate, if you like, his, his modest car collection. It wasn't m millions of pounds, you know, it was, it was every man classics, 10, 20,000 pounds each, but he, he, you know, he's had between 20, 25 to 40 cars over the, over the course of my upbringing. And we used to go to auctions and write down the prices and create these handwritten ledgers and then write them up on Excel. To, to, to look at what, what indexes and what prices, what things were doing. And all, all of that, I guess, you know, came into my, my personal life, but I never got to do it, you know, as a job or as a career. So when the opportunity to kind of mix my background in financial services and in regulated businesses offering mortgages and lending and stuff like that. So, you know, I've worked in financial services for, 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 God, 20 odd years. So when the opportunity after seeing Rally Road and what they were doing and thinking, you know, no, no one does that in the UK. And there's this real opportunity, like I said, to, to try and give people opportunities to access an asset class that's fantastically appreciating, you know, that's currently very high barriers to entry. And it was mixing my passion with my kind of work experience, it felt like it was like my, literally like my dream job. It was kind of like written for me almost. So I had to give it a go and start it. And, you know, that was what, four and a half years ago now. So, you know, it's still going, which is great. And we're still growing, which is also brilliant. But every day, you know, I'm very thankful for it. I feel very lucky because I'm around these, these things that just make me so happy and smile and, and almost, yeah, just remind me to go straight back to those days when I was waking up in a Welsh forest or, or still at the back of a garage in the F1. So sounds like the car crowd is like a dream Venn diagram for you. And there's so much passion yeah. that you have for this. <laughs> uh, is there anything, you know, kind of wrapping up slowly here, is there any maybe topic or trend or something you're seeing in the world of like alternative investment or cars that we haven't discussed that maybe you're paying attention to right now that, you know, is on your mind or gets you excited? I mean, I think we sort of touched on it briefly, but I think there, you know, it's, it's the general growth, I think, in the opportunity to invest in alternative assets is, is, is what we're seeing. What, what the, I mean, this is probably maybe a bit, a bit boring, I don't know, but what we're seeing is an interesting play now between distribution, um, I guess what you call like financial packaging and then curation. So, you know, previously we did the whole thing. So we curated our own cars, we packaged them as SPVs, and then we did distribution direct to consumer via the Car Crowd website. Now we're seeing businesses like, you know, some real major players um, talking about investments. You know, Monzo have released a big campaign about investments. I know eToro are looking at investments as well. And, and, and the natural progression for these platforms will be to go, you know, into alternative assets. So that distribution is going to be very interesting as, as the mass market globally adopts alternative investment. And how the regulator catches up with that is going to be fantastically uh, interesting. And, and, then, and then that middle layer, how that evolves from being, you know, traditional limited companies and SPVs to tokenization, you know, and, and blockchain or the, you know, the company in Switzerland, Splint, are using, using a Swiss law around, around uh, shared ownership. But, you know, there's going to be a, 
an emergence in, in technology, but also regulation that then determines how financial instrument wise we, we invest. And then from the bottom part of it, you know, we're, we're, we're really set on the curation side, you know, where we, we want to work with the best curators globally. And I think investors have to make sure whoever they're investing with has a very credible curation set underneath it, because I think that's going to be the differentiator for a lot of these platforms who may be competing at the distribution level to be able to say, well, we work with X because they are the people that can unlock the most scarce assets, highest value, you know, whatever it is, you know, almost becomes this kind of a VIP exclusivity. And, and that's going to be where I think the real competition emerges over the next couple of years. So, you know, we're, we're at the moment in a very fortunate space where Classic Cars is, is underserved. We're one of the few providers of that globally. And I'm sure that, that, won't, that won't remain. I hope it does, but I don't think it will. Um, so that's going to be very interesting for us to see how that evolves, because I think that's definitely the three layers now that are, that are emerging in the, in the market. Um, and, and for investors, it's, it's super exciting because you're going to have more and more choice to invest in more and more things that you care about with less and less barriers to entry, which has you know, got to be a right, the right place to be. Well, David, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm going to close with the same like last two questions I usually do. Oh. The first being, you know, where can people find you in the car crowd on social media website? And then what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? So you can find us on thecarcrowd.uk or the Car Crowd UK on social media, so that's Instagram, Facebook, etc. One last message, I guess just, you know, don't ever hesitate to invest in something you're passionate about, whether that be in your, in your job and your career and something you want to do, or whether that be in, in, in assets and where you put your money. I think investing in your passion, you know, you can't steer yourself too far wrong. Amazing. David, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Cheers, Danny. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.